This podcast is brought to you by the new term at fxphd.com. Among the new courses this term, our new Katana Lighting Training, a world first with Matt Leonard. Included in that is free VPN access to a full version of Katana, along with many other key programs to help you learn, such as Arnold, Maya, Nuke, Cinema 4D, and many more. They're all there to help you take your career to the next level. Check it all out at fxphd.com. You're listening to The RC, your guide to digital cinema, filmmaking, and cutting-edge imaging. Hi, and welcome to this week's RC podcast covering digital cinematography. This week we're going to be talking about Cook at the Oscars in the Red Room, 4K everywhere, new anamorphic lenses, and a whole bunch more. And this is, of course, on the uh, FX Guide RC podcast, where we see our role as to mine the news, filter the blogs, and even go down some of those now famous rat holes. This is the tech that Jason and I are discussing, obsessing about, arguing about, and even trying to work out. And I am joined this week via some kind of electronic satellite mechanism to Mr. Wingrove. How are you, sir? Hello. 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 Can you hear me? I can, sir. Yes. Coming in loud and clear from the outer reaches. Hello, everybody. <laughs> How are you? <laughs> Good. Thank you. Excellent. Excellent. I'm sort of a bit buried in post and things at the moment. So, uh, yes, I'm not, in the, um, I'm not in the compound with you. I'm, uh, yes, in the bowels of my office. And uh, we're really pleased to bring you this uh, 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 episode, I guess, because we've got a ton of stuff to talk about, really, really do have um, a ton of stuff to talk about. As I said in the opening, we've got uh, Les from Cook. We're congratulating him in the Red Room on his uh, Oscar statuette on behalf of the Cook uh, Company for what has... I had not realized this until I did that interview, Jace, that uh, Cook was around before Kodak. This is a company that's really, really been around a long time, and they wow. know what they're doing. And we love Cook lenses. I'll say it. Actually, they are my favorite lens. Absolutely. I just Absolutely. prefer Cook lenses to anything favorite else. Favorite rental lenses. <laughs> okay, so let's get into the news. Happy New Year, everyone, by the way. The year of 4K. <laughs> the year of 4K. <laughs> or, we... or nearly 4K. Is this our first one of the year, is it? I think it is. Okay. Must be. Yes, it is, definitely. Um, Sorry about the break, everyone. I've been super busy, so I'm, I've completely lost track of time. But hey, uh, let's get into it. So um, starting with Enter the Dragon. Yes, indeed. Uh, well, obviously Dragon Sense has been around. I was trying to work out when it was first. Is it two NABs ago? Yes, it was. Yeah, so last NAB... A long was, bloody time ago. ...was the non-tattoo one. The one before that was the Dragon Tattoo one, if you remember. Right. And uh, so that's this year in April would be two years since that NAB was uh, announcement. And we still don't have it. No, but but thankfully we have that really big um, 614 sensor and the Super 35 sensor. That's true. That's true. That's true. true. We have all those other ones. Yep, the 216. Yep, yep. we have all of those. That's true, to keep us going. To keep us going. Fair enough, really. The hours I wasted pondering tech that never materialized. But never mind. (laughs) We're, you're, in, you're on the wrong. You're on the wrong bloody podcast, mate. Yeah, no, I know. <laughs> uh, so, with that, that 123 uh, episodes of worrying, wondering, and musing about shit that, that doesn't exist. Anyway, okay. but the only reason on. that we can speak about the dragon with some degree of something is that uh, they actually published a picture from one. It's not a very good picture in terms not of uh, creative um, excellence, but it certainly is a picture. <laughs> it's a bloody good picture from a couple of things. Uh, a dynamic range chart. Mm. Uh, which now if we need to frame this based on what we know, uh, what we have at the moment, 
the Mysterium X, the current Epic, and not just Epic, Alexa, F55, they're all around 13 and a half, 14 stops. Now, uh, this Dynamic Range chart from uh, Dragon, and this is, you know, it's still, re they say early days, I'm hoping it's not too early days, I really want to get my hands on it now. I've sort of kind of poo-pooed this sensor for a little while, but now, no thanks, I think I'll have one. Uh, although it's a 20, 21 sort of 20 stop step chart, everyone's going, great, 20 steps of dynamic range. I'm seeing maybe 19 in here. Uh, I don't know what your, I'm not really used to well, reading these kind of charts, but well, it's actually, certainly not 14 or 13 and a half stops. We're getting an extra four or five stops out of it uh, with this new sensor. And that is obviously without any HDR mode, that is like blowing everything in existence out of the water. This doesn't exist yet, of course for us to buy but uh it's a bloody good indication of what we're going to get when you um send your camera in yeah just to be clear about that from a technical point of view even if you could read up to 20 that would be represent 19 because you need two to have one step do you know what I mean okay so even if you could no, said but that yes I'll well just okay so yes. okay so you have one stop dynamic range you need two clips or okay. two chips right so if you had 20 chips on, on this picture that you're referring to that was posted, at best that's 19, right? Because that's, you see what I'm saying? Between, okay, if you had three, you'd have yep. two stops. You had four, right. you have three okay. stops. With me? I get you. Yeah. Yep. Okay. To so, call it that amount of diamond. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Because no Fair one's enough. claiming. So it's definitely yeah. seeing, you know, 19, 18, 19. And, so and, a, you know, good, a, certain, a good four yeah. or five stops above the competition and above uh, Epic as it stands. But, but what I would say is there's a few things on that, right? Firstly, I do think this is really significant that it's got heaps of dynamic range. I think it's great. Um, I think it's going to be a really kick-ass sensor. Uh, what matters to me a lot is the noise floor, and mm. you can't really judge that off a still because that becomes apparent when it's a clip and you can see how the noise is running. Um, so that's one thing. Secondly, uh, at this early stage, you know, we could get super excited, but it would be a bit pointless. You really want to see what it's like <clears throat> when it's running. Yeah. Um, because yeah. this is really like a desktop-y kind of uh, or lab benchtop type kind of camera setup. This is not... Well, it is. This is basically, a, you know, like a Frankie, like one of the original prototypes. Uh, this is a sensor in a box at the moment. Um, we've never seen... We haven't seen a camera in the wild with, with this sensor. And you know, we haven't certainly, and I haven't, we haven't, you know, from any of our sources seen anything out there shooting yet. Uh, I'm presuming we're going to have a much better... Um, a much, I guess, thicker negative. We're going to have a much uh, meatier, more sensitive uh, sensor, regardless of the dynamic range, being that it is now a large sensor. It's gone from 5K to 6K. It's gone from 1.5 crop factor to 1.3 uh, crop factor. So just physics alone says larger sensor is going to collect more uh, you know, it's going to collect more photons, so you're going to get more energy, you're going to get more less noise, less background noise. The more actual information you get hitting the photo sites, the more photons, the more the the less background noise you have. But the signal to noise ratio ratio kind of goes uh, gets better, right? Yeah, I mean the thing is, we don't know what IR or um, OLPF filters on here. We don't know a bunch of stuff, and also, you know, it's a fairly technical image at best it's pretty much monochrome um, yeah i'd like to think that this is being taken through the ir uh filter uh that is meant to come with the the sensor one of the other improvements for for red dragon is meant to be a better ir cut now i've definitely seen this uh issue 
way more on Epic than DSLR. I shoot a lot of, of both. And just this last project, I shot a lot of absolute blinding Australian sun uh, with shooting foolishly wide open using the same filters I would normally shoot on my DSLRs and way more IR pollution. I'm not using, and I will start to be using a lot more um, IR cut filters uh, because there's way more magenta pollution and all of the sort of artifacts you see in, in an IR polluted image that I'm seeing with Epic versus DSLR. So I'm definitely hoping for an improvement on that side of things and hoping that uh, once you start putting IR filter on these things, that uh, that's not going to start playing with your... Um, Stuff yeah, this dynamic there, range. there's going to be a better IR filter on the new one, definitely. I just don't know what's on here, right? I mean, there's no yeah. black calibration on this as far as I know. Uh, this is just... and and But, you know, that being said, this is 6,144 by 3,160 and apparently at 82 frames per second, right? So, yeah, awesome. pretty freaking impressive. Yeah, but it's... I just think you can overanalyze these things at this point. You know, I mean, you yes. can... This is should be taken as... Uh, things are looking good, and we're starting to see some test pictures. And frankly, until we started seeing some test pictures, you know, you could have no sort of real belief that anything was particularly close. I, yeah. And and so with my sensible, skeptical hat on, I'd say, look, this looks great for NAB. Uh, this looks like there'll be a good, you know, dragon sensor at NAB. I mean, that's what it feels like to me. Well, the right yeah, time frame. we'll start to see. Uh, well, I, I just want to be able to get our hands on them. It's great to see them in NAB, but we saw it, you know, this was announced two NABs ago. Um, we, it's great to see it at a trade show. It's great to see clips like this. But at the end of the day, people just want to don't, you know, don't stop showing shit that we can't get our hands on. It's terrific. That the whole cock tease thing is just really, really. The more the better this stuff looks, the more frustrating it is. Um, so, so you've basically yeah, I, got Frankie pole dancing in your kind of laptop. Is that what you're saying? What's that? You've basically got a Frankie pole dancing in yeah. your laptop. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I just basically want to have. Um, yeah, I do now want to get my hands on and it. And you've, you've got a fistful of you've got a fistful of dollars you want to put in Frankie. Now so. gone up. We don't know by how much. The original price for the upgrade was six k. That was the two years ago, or maybe a year ago when they announced the price. Uh, I can only guess it's going to be sub ten k. I'd like it to be. You know, eight k is going to hurt. Six k was great, but eight k is livable. Anything more than that, and you're starting to get into the price of an entire Scarlet. So, yeah. Anyway, yeah. We, we shall see. But it's interesting um, they said that they couldn't upgrade the Scarlets as well. I can't understand for the love of anything why that would be the case. I understand that they might want to do it for a marketing reason. I can't understand why that would be from a technical reason because they always said that to upgrade on a Scarlet, you'd have to upgrade some of the circuitry to bring it yeah. to epic levels. So it's the same camera. I mean, it's the same body. It's the same camera. So, you know, if you have to upgrade some electronics to bring it up to Epic level to upgrade it to a a Dragon level, that still all applies. Yeah. Um, so the only reason that they're not doing it is because the economics don't make sense. Uh, and I know that's well, annoyed a few people. I don't know. Scarlet's a f smaller physical body. We're talking about a larger sensor size now. You're talking about the sensor, physical sensor size. I'm sorry, the Scarlet's but, a phys small physical sorry, size? The, what? the Scarlet is a smaller sensor than Epic, right? What? Scarlet is 4K. Well, it's the same bloody camera. I mean, it's the same. It's, a, it's got yeah. a different spec on it, but it's the same mm. bloody camera. Yeah. Okay. Isn't it? Yeah, no, I keep I seem to remember Scarlet being being thinner and that was the old days maybe. <laughs> yeah, it was the old days before we had Scarlet X. So, I'll shut up. Okay. We'll just cut that bit out. You never heard that, did you, right? Okay. 
Um, moving right along, have you seen The Hobbit yet? I have. What do you think? I have finally. Um, hmm. Okay. 48 frames. I'm not a fan. Didn't like it. I spent most of the movie not in the movie. There's some amazing, utterly, I wish I had seen it. And I will probably, no doubt, go and see it in 3D, but uh, non-HFR. Um, the film itself, I thought it was great. It's definitely um, is another stage in, in, in the um, in the series. It fits in beautifully. It's, it's nothing, some amazing sequences, some fantastic technical achievements, some beautiful... Um, Beautiful effects, uh, but the 48 frames, that specific part of it, uh, uh, took me out of the film for most, most of it, and uh, yeah, so not a fan. Uh, I just felt like I was watching a 1970s filmed theatrical event or something, it felt like a BBC uh, BBC stage show, uh, or some sort of DV, uh, 1970s BBC series. Um, I, and I really spent a lot of time thinking about why, and I still haven't got my head around it, and it feels sped up without it actually being sped up. The whole thing feels like you're watching something on fast forward, yet of course you're not. It's, 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 um, so I'm very conscious, my brain is subconsciously picking up on the different frame rate, and I don't think it's necessarily shutter angle. Um, Last time I was I was full of shit talking about what the shutter shutter angle they used was like 150 or so. Uh, they shot 270 degrees, which is um, uh, at 48 frames a second. My math, and you can correct me wrong if I'm wrong, Mike, and I'm sure you will. The 180 degrees rule does not apply when you are at when you have a base projection or a base screening rate of and. Of 48 frames a second it basically doubles the to get a to get that 150th natural look you need to really be shooting at 360 degree 360 degree shutter you want if you want if you're shooting 48 frames wait 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 wait, wait. what yeah okay, if you're shooting at 48 frames yeah and you want like and you want like a 48 and you want like a 48th of a of a of a, a 48th of a second motion blur then you basically have to spend all of your shutter time with the shutter open. Well, I mean, it's an odd concept, right? Like if you're shooting at 24 frames a second, half the time you want it to be blocked. If you shoot high speed, you go for the same thing. So when it's played at 24, half the time it's blocked. Now if you shoot at 48 and play it back at 48, the concept is semi-meaningless in a way, right? Because yeah. it can't look like 24 because in 24... One forty eighth of a of the time, it's black. But if you're shooting at forty eight frames a second, one forty eighth, one whole frame would have to be black, right? So it's you then go, okay, well, why don't I just uh, do I don't know half that? And you go, well, you could do half that, but the whole principle of it was based on real time, not record time. If that makes sense. In other words, the yes. reason why a half shutter works at when you're shooting, you know, massively high speed, like 500 frames a second, is it's still played back at 24 frames a second. And so they did a bunch of tests that came up with the solution, which was to not be uh, shooting at any kind of extension of 24 theory, but to just shoot a shutter which was sort of not fully open and not shut down a lot. 
Yeah, basically went sort of about halfway between yeah. what it should be to get a to get a simulation of the 180 degree rule, which would be 360 degree shutter. And if you kept it at 180 degree shutter, you'd have um, like a 96 or so. So yeah, they've gone kind of halfway. So they've actually reduced the amount of motion blur. So it is slightly sharper. Can than... I can I give you a really interesting insight that I really wish that I'd written, even had the conversation with? But I think it's one of the most interesting and unusual uh, stuff that I've read. Now, having said that, if you say no, I'm going to be really offended. <laughs> Um, okay, there's a website called uh, kk.org, which has um, got a – sounds like it's uh, some kind of racist uh, group, doesn't yeah. it? No, this is a um, – two-thirds of one. There you go. This is a, a, an article that was written by somebody who um, was at a dinner party, apparently, with John Knoll. So I apologize if this person, in writing this story, has misrepresented what John Knoll said. But it's so clever that it's the sort of thing that I bet John Knoll did say. So – his theory, uh, when at this dinner party somebody said, you know, um, I didn't like it kind of thing, uh, was then sort of transcribed in this article. So it's not a direct quote. It's more like, as best I can remember, this is what John said to me that made me sort of think, wow, this guy's really bright. Are you with me? Yeah. Okay. So his theory uh, was that if you were on set uh, of a um, uh, an actual... Um, well, basically, his premise was you probably only found the lighting odd on the interior scenes and not on the exterior scenes. And I would say to you, Jason, would you agree with that? Did you find the exterior wide shots bothersome? It was like mainly the interior. I mean, for me, it certainly was. That was the case. The interior shots, um, you know, where... Uh, uh, I'm going to say I didn't find either of it bothersome. I think for me, it was purely the... I was seeing... It didn't, uh, wasn't really focusing my attention on that, to be honest. I, I was really more being freaked out by the sped up but non-sped up look. And it was frame, it was frame rates and, and motion beyond the, you know, you can see all the imperfections, in, including lighting uh, look, really. Um, okay. Well, his point was, imagine you were um, lucky enough to be invited in uh, to the Hobbit set, like onto Peter Jackson's. Uh, New Zealand set when he was shooting, but it's an interior, right? And he was standing right beside the camera, right beside uh, where the camera was looking at the incredibly well-lit set with this incredibly harsh lighting pouring down because they were shooting, uh, you know, with mirrors and, and all mm. this other stuff. And you'd probably stand there and say, that doesn't look very realistic. That looks kind of fake. And yet it would look good on film is the theory, right? And yeah. for many of us, we've stood on a set and it looks yeah. really odd. And then in reality, it doesn't. So, so the thing is that uh, John Knowles' theory is that you're getting closer to reality. So it's feeling more like the, if you like, incorrectness of the lighting of a set that you're used to rather than it getting filtered through high definition right. kind of stuff and yeah. put out. And so the standard way of lighting it and the standard way of doing all this stuff on the interiors produces a lighting that kind of looks harsh and fake and weird and unreal and the more you go to this 48, for some people, the closer you get to it being reality, the more it goes back to what you would experience if you were standing on the set. Now, that being said, if you go to the landscape scene and stand outside on the edge of a nice rise looking out over the New Zealand countryside, the lighting that you're seeing and the lighting they're filming with are exactly the same thing. In other words, they don't do artificial lighting on a landscape 
because it's lit by the sun and it looks normal. Yeah, it enhances reality. So if you're in an artificially lit situation, it's going to ha- enhance the artificiality. If you're exactly in a naturally right. lit scene or even an interior that's naturally lit, it's going to enhance that or not make the worst of it. Now, I, that's certainly what I felt. I felt that um, they, the sensations that I was experiencing, especially in, in the opening stuff where he's at his writing desk, yes, uh, were dramatically Definitely stronger. Definitely for some reason those as well, yes. But maybe that was probably because it was the beginning of the film and your, your brain and your subconscious is all getting used to this, this very new, unusual event, you know, way of, way of perceiving vision. Certainly, movement. yeah, certainly Vincent Lafayette sort of thought that it made it actually even harder to hear the dialogue, which is kind of interesting. <laughs> interesting. I think yeah, I'm right in quoting that. Interesting. I mean, it, for me, it was um, un- unnerving, and, and uh, I could see the film beyond that, but I just was, wasn't immersed. It didn't immerse me. It didn't immerse me in the... It didn't immerse me in the film. It immersed me in the process of the film. It immersed me in... I, I was very conscious. So can I make a recommendation? Process. And there's something someone wrote about the fact that... And it may have been Vince, maybe in somewhere else. I've read, read so much about this. Um, is that, uh, you know, um, films are not reality. We don't want to enhance the reality of film because films inherently are not real. You walk on a set, it's not a, it's not a real... All the little tiny cues that say when you're standing on a set that say hey this is a set you know wash away when you're doing a 50 you're only seeing when you the shutter is only open half of the time and you're at at normal you know resolutions and normal film frame rates of film you know once you sort of start to strip away all those barriers then you start to enter in the world of standing on that set and you do start to see you know you get that you almost feel the fact that it's a set even if it's the best set in the world you know it's um Especially when you're dealing with a an unusual set, you know, you're not dealing with like a, a a house or a natural sort of modern day setting. You're dealing with a fantasy situation to begin with. So you take a fantasy situation and then you enhance the reality of the fantasy. Ah, oh, no, it does my head in even just trying to <laughs> quantify it in a podcast, let alone uh, visually. So you know what I'd recommend you do? I recommend you go and see Hitchcock. Because Hitchcock was shot on the Epic, on the Red Studios. Yeah. And it's awesome. It's great. And it's shot, mm. you know, like a film film. And it looks great. It's a really good film. Mm. Okay. I definitely definitely want to see it. I'm dying to see Flight. I'm dying to see Zemeckis back to, uh, back to the world of uh, reality. Oh, so you should. Back it's to, good. Uh, live action. Flight dying is very good. That. Yeah. And, and Denzel Washington is just just delivers and okay he delivers an amazing performance and there are scenes in that film that uh you'd appreciate from a directorial point of view stuff there's a shot with a minibar it just blows your brains out how good that's well how well that's directed and acted but yeah yeah hey um so we should uh keep moving because we've got a lot of other stuff to get to but uh, i do say um that uh you know clearly for some people it works some people it doesn't and uh but you know Hey, a billion dollars can't be wrong. Well, no, I was going to say, I just got in the way of it doing... or not. It's a bit hard to tell. No one really cares, maybe, at this stage. The accountants don't care at this stage. Um, I've been interested to see what their approach is. I'm sure there's a lot of holiday talk between Andrew and producers and, and, and Peter and, and studio as to um, do they 
do this going forward? Do they subtly change something? Do they change the frame rate? Not necessarily the frame rate. Do we change shutter shutter angles? What do what do they do, or do they proceed? You know, keep going as normal. And uh, I don't know. The film is always there for you to see in two D. What I haven't seen in as as the non high frame rate is there. A, do you are you perceiving the fact that it's a shorter shutter speed? Are you conscious of that as well? Has the process of conversion from high frame rate to normal? Uh, has that affected the look of the normal frame rate um, screening? I've got to tell you, I've seen that. If you've I, seen it, let me know. When I got sent the screener, right, from the Academy Awards. Yeah. And so I'm watching it HD, uh, but, you know, like uh, obviously mono, in a, in a domestic environment. And I think it looks great. The screen uh, is a Blu-ray? Uh, or just HD file? I think, it's, I think it's an HD. But anyway, the yeah. point is I'm watching it on HD uh, maybe up res, I grant you, but my point yeah. is it's not shot with uh, stereo and it's not being done at high frame rate. Um, we did we did an interview uh, with Andrew Lesney for the Hobbit uh, iBook because FX Guide now publishes eBooks, and if you'd like that eBook, by the way, it's free in the iTunes store. Um, if you want to uh, get it, there's a link on FX Guide site. If you, um, it's awesome like by it. the way, that's superb, love it. Thank you. It's an 85-page uh, book on The Hobbit, and so uh, I would totally recommend you download it. It's free. Um, it's free. It's free. If you want to do a search in iTunes, search for The Hobbit, An Unexpected Journey-Awards 2012. Uh, the reason is because we did it with Warners and with Wetter as part of the awards campaign season. So uh, Hobbit, Unexpected Journey, Awards 2012. We'll get it to throw up the correct version. Um, and anyway, my point about this is that we spoke to Andrew Lesney, or rather interviewed him about it, yeah. and he made a really interesting point, which I thought was just super obvious and it just didn't even occur to me, is that we were always going on about the epics being 800 ISO, but yeah. he was shooting uh, at 48 frames a second, so he basically lost a stop, so he's down at 400, then he's shooting mirror rigs, which lost another stop, so he was actually shooting at a lower ISO than the film he got to shoot Lord of the Rings on 10 years ago, which is kind of funny, huh? Because he was shooting yeah. like 250 ISO so he'll be very uh, i perhaps they'll start shooting uh, the next episode uh, on red dragon who knows i have to say i love andrew lesney's cinematography and um i think he's just one of the most talented dops out there and yeah yeah and look this is a this is his first obviously first high frame rate uh, film this was his first major digital film and um this is first 3d film so to tackle all those three and to break ground on at least one of those uh and come up with the film that they've got is just astounding and you know fantastic that's that's really really three you know real killer challenges right there and the scope of the uh the scope of the production if you haven't seen any of the video diaries the uh the video diary just purely on on locations and location logistics and location moves will do your head in it is astoundingly complicated um as a dop managing all that i'm just just uh, you know hats off i also think that it's worth just saying and because somebody said to me oh well you know you're kind of like biased to the hobbit for some reason and i on this 48 frame thing and my attitude is really pretty simple on this i don't particularly go for the 48 frames but man do i applaud a world in which a director like peter jackson and a cinematographer of the standard of andrew lesney experiment and move beyond just 24 i would hate to be in a world where we were like 
no yeah. one even tried doing anything different. Um, Absolutely. It'd be so, applauded yeah. for pushing forward that, you know, everyone has the choice of what format, there's of numerous formats just to see this film, 2D, 3D, high frame rate, normal frame rate. It's there as an option, you know. I mean, yes, and I've kind of been guilty of anybody's down on it as kind of been down on it because it's like we're being forced to watch it in this way and of course not we were totally given a choice and uh for some for a lot of people that this has been you know a great one so yeah it's it's we have an option and and good on them for essentially recreating like a petabyte of data or doing a, the amount of data is like doing two 3d films by the decision to do 48 frames a second was a massive workload on post on everybody processing all of this data so and having to, to do the grade having to do the you know all of the on such an effect heavy movie that decision to go to double your data is obviously not been taken lightly and you know uh, at least it's the person who owns all the post um, is, is a good person to be able to make that first decision. It wouldn't have been made otherwise, probably. So uh, there's another camera that's appeared that maybe was the one you were confusing with the mini um, Scarlet that that, uh, that we joked about earlier, which is a uh, literally a Cine Raw Mini. Yeah, the Mini <clears throat> Mini Kini, I'm calling it. The the the, the I have to stop calling it the Chinese epic because it really is um you know it's started i mean obviously it wouldn't probably exist without epic having having been been there of the the shoulders to stand on but this is i think we mentioned last episode the um rumored smaller version of the uh the uh kenny raw super 35 it uses the same 2k cmos sensor as the kenny raw super 35 uh pretty much the same features but much lower cost uh, much smaller body it's about it's 85 by 115 by 145 millimeters uh if you don't know millimeters <laughs> learn them <laughs> 85 by 115 by 145 is pretty bloody small i'm not sure how that relates to an epic but it's 1.9 kilos maybe slightly heavier uh it doesn't do the um uh, what was the other format? It doesn't do Cineform. It can do Cineform with an external recorder. The original Kenny Raw Super 35 did. Uh, this is Cinema DNG internally only. It has a removable internal SSD. Uh, it uh, not too much about frame rates. I don't. I don't think it does super high frame rates, but it'll do 2K, 1080p, 720p uh, to Cinema DNG on a Super 35 sensor and record it internally. So pretty impressive. Uh, I think the price is maybe from memory. I want to say five or four, five or six k. Um, yeah, impressive. There are some cameras that I that don't set my afterburners alight. Like, and I'm going to say that. And somebody said we hadn't talked about this much. The the GH3, right? Yeah. And we haven't discussed yeah. that much. And it's because I don't find that an exciting camera. But having said that, this is a camera that will record at 24 frames a second, 72 um, megabits per second, you know, down like a decent bit rate. Uh, oh, Panasonic 90- have been listening to the market with that camera. This is my point. This is my point. It's a the lot third of camera. stuff with it. It's just yeah. maybe it's micro four thirds that I'm just a micro four. Th- I'm just a larger sensor slut and I just, it's not on my radar from the same reason that the Black Magic's not. No, no, but it's different. See, this is my point. It's very different. I think this is a valid camera that just maybe isn't exciting to you. 
but it does sensible things, right? It records at sensible frame rates. It does sensible stuff. And if it isn't sexy to you, uh, so be it. It's a completely valid option. It just isn't a valid option, as I say to me, because of the whole... F I, I basically have so much Canon glass, I have so much invested in Canon. I would have need a very significant reason to shift. If I was buying... Uh, you know, they, they've, the video stuff in the GH2 was much, much better obviously than anyone kind of expected. And the three is uh, a bigger camera and it does, you know, better stuff, but it's, yes. but it's, you can't, you can't, you shouldn't take pot shots at Panasonic for making that camera. If it isn't super sexy because you just don't have but to like four thirds. No, no, I'm just saying, you, but this is my point, right? Yeah. That I'm not out to get cheap shots at cameras. If I don't happen to like them, I'm totally happy that somebody else could. No, but there's what I plenty find... of side-by-side. -side, if you can look for a million side-by-side -side comparisons between say 5D Mark III and the GH2 even, and that, the GH2 in terms of sharpness and clarity and even detail and highlights, shits all over the 5D Mark II. And probably, I think 5D Mark III, they did comparisons as well. GH3, again, is, is one step beyond. I've been to presentations by Panasonic at the ACS, and uh, they have... He went through all of the things that they've they've changed with this camera and improved, and it's clear that Panasonic have been listening to the market, uh, albeit it's a slightly different market to me, but it's definitely a market nonetheless. It's a very viable camera for a few things. A lot, a lot of people have flown them in octocopters and got fantastic results. Beautiful, you know, beautiful stuff where you're not too worried about sort of, of depth of field. There's Metabones adapters if you want. I didn't see Metabones, but there's definitely um, mount adapters if you want to put your EF lenses or or any glass on. Uh, Micro Four Thirds, there's plenty of 16mm older 16mm glass and adapters to put this stuff on. It's um, it's it's interesting. And um, So how can a company as good as Blackmagic Design get it so wrong and not listen to the market? Yeah. But hey, the stuff like the GH... Um, the GH3 is going to get a lot more interesting with this uh, with the Metabone Speed Booster. Now, this thing, first when I first saw it, it did my head in with, oh my God, this is fantastic, <laughs> let me have one. And then I kind of worked out that I can't really use it on anything I own. But um, Mike, have you been across this? Well, yeah, it, it seems to be something that breaks the laws of physics because it suddenly seems to give you a faster lens than, it, than the camera or the lens should be. And that seems to be... You know, hang on a second. Yeah. That doesn't it's work. More, the idea is more, in fact, maybe not GS3, I'm, I'm full of shit, but uh, for APS-C, the idea is that if you're using Super 35, if you're using full-frame capable glass on an APS-C camera, you're actually, there's a whole image circle there. There's a whole bunch more light coming through the lens. There's a whole larger image that you are not capturing. Basically, there's light coming through there and imagery that's being wasted. What this is essentially is, if you imagine like a wide-angle adapter you might put on the front of the lens, this is like a rear-mounted wide-angle adapter as best as I can guess. And because it's collecting the rest of the light and the rest of the imagery from around the back of the image circle of the lens, someone please tw tweet me or, or email me if I've got this wrong, but it's, uh, you're gaining a stop, and you're also getting the full-frame field yeah. of view on yeah, an so APS-C-sized camera. Why has no one thought about this before? And the fact, and now that someone has reinvigorated this idea, please, someone, give us a version of this for PL or EOS mount, if it's physically possible. As it's, because it seems at the moment these adapters uh, are limited to shorter flange depth cameras, mirrorless compact cameras such as Micro Four Thirds, NEX7s, etc, GH2, GH3, 
so adapting this idea to larger cameras would be awesome, providing your lens choice uh, is full frame capable. Yeah, so you should give an example, Jace, because I think an example makes it really clear. Like imagine yep. you've got a Canon 85. So an 85 has a 85's field of view, which means it's kind of long, right? And it's at 1.2 because it's a good piece of glass. Yeah. You stick this thing on the end of it and stick it on a Canon NEX camera, and it's now a basically about a 59, 60 mil. So it's a wider image that you're seeing, but because it's taking all that extra light, as you say, we're now dropped down to F, wait for it, f- zero. Point nine. Yes. <laughs> it's important, Which obviously, is... to not say it's not changing the depth of field, of course. This is just giving you a wider view on that same shot. It's giving you the light value of 0.95, uh, which... Uh, or it's gaining a stop on what you would have. I don't see how it works in that. Well, in because that way. if you've got a faster Be- f-stop, if the yeah. if the lens is faster in that respect, so when you're fully open, you're now getting more light in, right? Which means you could effectively stop down more to get a shallower depth of field for the same ISO. Yes, you're saying? getting more light than you would have from an, from going from APS-C. To, to, to full frame. Well, imagine you've got your Canon 85 on there, right? And you're saying that that is perfectly lit. And now all of a sudden, it's a 60 mil and it's it's 0.9. So suddenly you go, oh, I'm a stop overexposed. So you could change uh, things like putting, well, you, could, you could change things around to have less light and thus more depth of field. Though, of course, at the fully wide open end, you don't know where to go. But you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. Um, the thing about this is that um, I don't know it's actually possible to do it for a mirrored thing. I think that may actually break some laws of... Now, of an interesting point, on. though, is that um, uh, Matt Juclos mentioned in one of his posts, and I've pinged him about it, I'm interesting to dig a little bit deeper on it, that his dad, who owns Juclos lenses, used to make something called... They used to call it a 707 because it was, I think, 0.707 uh, um, in uh, field of view uh, decreaser, I guess you'd call it. Uh, decreasing the field of view or, or increasing the field of view by 0.707. You know yeah. the right. You know what I'm yeah. trying to say. Yeah. <laughs> um, it makes it but wider. he would yep. m- made them in the past for, for other lenses for, I guess, in the film days. So This is a, what, $600 So it's potential adapter. to make it happen for, a, say, PL glass. In fact, you may even have one. This is a $600 if You imagine that option. on an F, F3, right, an APS-C sensor or a red one, um, that you could, get, you could get full frame image circle if your, lens is, if your lens is full frame capable, has a full frame image circle. You can get a wilder, wilder, that, wilder, that wider um, 5D full frame look on a uh, Super 35 or APS-C sensor. I should say for people that are listening at home that Jason doesn't ignore me when he's talking. He's just said if he's talking, Skype cuts out my audio to him. So he can there is a way to anything. fix that, by the way, Mike. Is there? Uh, I should stop talking. <laughs> <laughs> wasn't quite what I had in mind, but for those of you who do use Skype a lot and that thing pisses you off, in the uh, audio and video panel of Skype preferences, there's a little button that says automatically adjust microphone settings. If you turn that off, I'm pretty sure it affects the talking over someone else um, feature, shall we call it, of Skype. So in the audio videos, at least in the Mac there, there's a little uh, radio button for um, uh, stop Skype changing your microphone settings. So, microphone, Mike, if you'd like to change that setting, I think it might even apply on the fly. Um, anyway, yes, yeah, sorry, I'm not. T- uh, go ahead. I'm, 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 I was just saying I'm it was six hundred. 
I was just saying it's six hundred dollars, and uh, and uh, yeah, I would definitely wait to hear back because if anyone would know what they're talking about on this, it'd be uh, uh, GCLOS. They're really good at that kind of stuff. So the first of these adapters uh, available is for Sony E-mount, such as NEX7s, NEX5s. That's the target market, I guess, for this adapter. But uh, as they also use the NEX mount, that opens it up to the FS700, FS100. So there are some pro camera solutions that you can use this mount on today. There are other mounts uh, in the wings, a converter for Leica R for, to use on Fuji's X mount, and Micro Four Thirds, so GH2, GH3, I guess all probably going for EOS or Nikon on the front end, but we don't know yet. Not cheap, as you say, around five ninety nine. But um, dead keen to get my hands on one. Love to have a play. Um, but yes, let's revive this idea. I love this this concept, and let's get it going for 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 large amounts and more pro mounts for PL or for EOS, if it's if it's possible. Where's this miracle button that you're referring to? Uh, Skype. Yeah. Uh, Skype preferences. Yeah. And then there's the audio video tab. Yeah. Uh. Oh, yeah. automatically adjust microphone settings, is that yeah, it? turn that off. All right, I've done that. Beautiful, and then if I talk, and then you talk at the same can time. Can you hear me? And then I talk over top of you. You still can't hear me. Well, it doesn't <laughs> do that weird dipping thing. Okay. Hey, um, <laughs> moving right along, yep. yeah, uh, speaking of other add-ons, what's this fan plate you've discovered? This is for... Um, this is for DSMC, for Epic or Scarlet. It's a add-on plate on the top. In fact, you replace the uh, top plate that most people have got. It's an additional fan to sit on top of the Epic, which basically reduces the overall average camera temperature. So the fans do that annoying kick into high-speed setting. If you're doing a long take or you're in quiet dialogue, this is a an add-on much quieter fan that sits on the top of the camera keeps the epic cooler and makes the uh, fans shift into a higher speed and on say long takes or in long takes on high or hot days or hot set uh, it will mean that those fans get louder later so in terms of time if you're doing a record you know recording time say 10 minutes or or, or so you might get the fans on on an epic normally you might kick from kick up another 10 10% and that difference can be the difference between not really hearing it over dialogue to, to actually hearing it so if you put the if you're really finding for me it's not it's, it's not been that much of an issue but more for drama and longer longer takes and quieter situations and more studio dialogue situations the fans can be a bit of a pain a lot of people do have an issue with them um, and fan plate from Mecha Sax. Uh, I'm still trying to find out from them how much this actually costs, but it can't be all that much. It's a block of metal and a fan. <laughs> it does have some speed control ability to it, though. It's, I'm sure there's no, a lot nicely of... nicely milled piece of... It's know. beautifully milled. It's basically a replacement top plate um, that actually adds an extra bit of um, uh, um, airflow. Air um, but if you go to mechasax.chmecasax... Um, and you can find the fan plate there. I can't imagine it's much, but if you've got this real this issue, then uh, yeah, it's it's definitely um, it definitely has been shown to 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 be effective or to reduce the effects of of a no noisy fan on the Epic. 
not as I say a problem that I have too much because I'm generally doing shorter takes but uh, for, for longer run stuff this is definitely definitely helping and so we should move before we talk any more about lenses to the red room because I have yes. Les from uh, Cook Lenses and uh, I definitely been looking forward to talking to him about this because uh, as I said at the outset of the show um, the Cook company effectively has been rewarded for um, a SciTech Oscar which is a, an actual uh, award of merit. The reason that they're getting this is basically the Cook look and uh, there's a couple of things I want to discuss on that because in fact there has been an article that was been published, uh, John Maxwell's piece on Cook I think and he described the Cook look and that got some traffic around the net, which is great. I mean, don't get me wrong, it's terrific. It, it, it's, how can I put this? It's discussing the fact that you want to not have chromatic aberration from a lens. Mm. And if you were talking to a techie kind of person, they'd say, yes. If you're talking to someone that's not techie, it says, oh, I've got the secret to what the cook look is. And my answer would be, yeah, it's got to be more than that, as you'll hear in this interview. So I think I think you'll find that Cook, and I love these guys to death because, as I say, they are my absolute favorite lenses. But I think what you'll find is that they're no more likely to reveal to me, as they were to anyone else, uh, what the actual super secret source recipe is that is the... Uh, the, the actual cook look, but certainly part of it is having a lens that's made so well that it doesn't have chromatic aberrations. And Jace, I recorded this uh, a little bit earlier in the week. You are entering the Red Room. Les, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, good to talk to you again, my friend. My pleasure, Mike. It's been a long time. Well, congratulations, uh, being recognized by the Academy, and rightly so, for the tremendous work that uh, Cook has done. And, of course, a SciTech uh, Oscar statue is something to be really proud of. Uh, and we are, you know, and, um, I don't want to say it's long overdue, uh, and certainly it's, but, you know, Cook has been around. I've been trying to think of an older company that's still in existence, that's been continuously serving the industry since the beginning, and I can't think of one uh, you know, <laughs> that hasn't uh, that hasn't recently filed for Chapter Eleven. You mean? Yeah, pretty well. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but even even we're older than them. Um, you know, George Eastman, when he was start, thinking about starting Kodak, came over and spent a couple of days with William Taylor, the founder of our company, uh, who has already been in business. Kodak, I think, was formed in 1889, I believe, or 88, and uh, our parent company, Taylor Hobson, was formed in 1886. So is this really the first time the Academy has acknowledged the tremendous uh, contribution that Cook has made to motion picture cinematography? It's the first, it's the first time the Academy has acknowledged the company. Uh, okay. We have one, a Gordon, Gordon Cook, who was our lead designer through the 50s, 60s, and early 70s won a Gordon E. Sawyer Award for his lifetime contribution to the industry. And in 2000, uh, the three principal designers uh, on the S4 project, a uh, guy named James Moultrie, another gentleman, Mike Salter, and uh, our, had our chief designer at the time, Mark Gershman, all won uh, a SciTech plaque. But the company has never been recognized by the Academy for its continual ongoing contribution to the industry. 
so we're we're quite uh, you know we are quite humbled by it and honored. This is the uh, Oscar statuette, and uh, and deservedly so, the Academy Award for Merit. Um, it's gonna. It's actually in the sort of description of the award. It actually mentions that this is, uh, uh, you know, for your contribution. But specifically names the cook. Look, and I'm going to talk to you about that for a second. But I, I'd be remiss if I didn't follow up on a point you just made, which is the derivation of the name Cook Optics. It wasn't because there was a guy called Bob Cook. No, it's actually quite an interesting story. Um, back in 1893, there was another. T- Taylor, H. Dennis Taylor, no relation to William Taylor, the founder of the company. And he worked for a company called T. Cook and Sons that was in New York. And they were telescope makers. But Dennis Taylor was also an avid, well, he was a lens designer and an avid photographer. And he, he came up with a construction that became called the Cook Triplet. Uh, up until the Cook Triplet, when you took a photograph, and you've seen old photographs, they were all, if you wanted detail at the edges of the frame, you basically had to shoot with a pinhole camera, F64, or, or you know, basically a pinhole. Uh, if you shot wide open, say, an F, well, anything faster probably than an F32, <laughs> you'd get that sort of vignetting or, or softness all around the edges. And you, everybody's seen these old 1880, 1890 photographs like that. Um, with the Cook triplet, he was able to get sharp detail all the way to the edge at relatively uh, slow speeds. In fact, uh, we have a photograph that was taken of York Mr. Cathedral, and to our knowledge, the first photograph taken with the Cook triplet, at least the only one that survives, and he, he actually took this as a test and sent it to William Taylor, uh, to show what, what his construction could do. And it was taken at an F37, which for the day was a speedy lens. Yes. And it, on the Cook website, there's a thing called the Cook Factory Tour, which is a, a, a PDF of a PowerPoint. And one of the slides in there is, in fact, the, um, it, we talk about the history of that, and it is, in fact, this photograph we have. So the deal was made since telescopes couldn't benefit from the Cook triplet. A deal was made between Dennis Taylor, William Taylor, and T. Cook and Sons, and they licensed the Cook triplet to, to, to William Taylor to use in his photographic lenses, with the provision that, in addition to whatever money he's changed hands, with the provision that any lens using the Cook triplet would bear the name Cook. And that's where the brand name came from, and that was in 18... The first quote-unquote Cook lens was manufactured and sold in 1894. Over the years, Cook simply became the premium brand uh, that was produced by Taylor Hobson. And they, they had other brands of lesser... Well, at different price points or different qualities, but was always the premier brand. Uh, our involvement with the industry, as I said, goes back all the way to the beginning. George Easton came and visited. We supplied all the lenses for Kodak in their early days, up, up until the first four. Uh, and our first, our first motion picture lens that I've been able to identify 
that was specifically built, designed, and built for motion picture use was in the early 1900s. So I first heard about or knew about Cook lenses way before I knew you personally. And and the thing that I knew about, and, and in my day it was the S4, obviously you now have... Uh, S5, but the S4 was just the best lens for portraiture, and people would refer to the Cook look, and I couldn't articulate what that was, but right. I knew that this was the lens that just had this amazing um, ability to produce a really nice-looking sort of human face, and it, it was, and I say a portrait lens, I don't mean for doing portraits per se, but if you're shooting a person for a kind of a, a situation where, you know, they're going to be in, in relative close-up. This was the lens that just seemed to produce uh, the most subtle and interesting contrast ratio and everything else. And I guess my question to you is, how much is the Cook look, that, that term, something that, you know, people just latch onto and, and don't define? And how much is it something that you internally have completely defined? Well, we... Um to us, the cook look or the recipe for the cook look is a lot like the recipe for Coca-Cola. <laughs> so you really have to kill me for me to tell you what it is. But but you're quite right. The cook look is a evolves an emotional response. It, it evolved actually. If we go back before the S4, there were the speed pancros, and the speed pancros came into being with the advent of talking movies in the 20s. And we did a lot of homework with the speed pancros, looking at looking at the audience for the lens. And the audience for the lens is not you or me, it's the film. So we really designed the the color response, the contrast, the um what frequencies we used to tune the lens to. We made all those choices back there in the early days of talking movies. And as you probably are aware, the speed pancros, I have letters in the file about the speed pancros saying, from studio people saying they made talking movies possible. Because there were no really fast lenses being used at the time. Of course, they had to switch from lighting things with arc lamps, fake noisy carbon arcs, to primitive incandescence. So, as I said, they really made talking movies possible. And we came up with the recipe at that time, and we've been true to that ever since. Um, luckily for us, um, color film, in its characteristics that on a spectral sense, we're not a lot different. So the recipe continued to work well for color film. And then extremely lucky for us, this, in a spectral sense, chips are in the same neighborhood as black and white color film. And then the new chips, they all tend to be in the same sort of neighborhood. So our recipe has, you know, have we refined it over the years? Yes. But have we, have we changed it? Uh, no. Okay, well, let me ask you about this. Uh, Jonathan Maxwell was asked recently to discuss it from a technical point of view, and he referred to uh, the look as being a sympathetic color depth in the images combined with an adjusted coincidence between the sharpest image and the optimum chromatic focus. 
So that's a, that was a really interesting comment, and it's led to people um, asking uh, Jonathan Maxwell more about that, and there's some great articles about it. Um, what What is that uh, referring to? Is it as simple that the contrast matches the focus, because obviously those two don't have to, to match, or does it go beyond that in terms of... Uh, well, I, I think, as John points out in his article, you know, it, um, he, he goes to great lengths to explain uh, the, the chromatic, and, and, and we have, in all the lenses, this is not unique to Cook, but on all the lenses that are pretty much in use, you know, when you look at them on a projector, you, you'll see this sort of shift in color when you get to the, when they're really sharp, if you go slightly one way, you'll see like a green, green fringe. If you go slightly the other way, you see a um, magenta fringe. Because magenta fringe. they're different wavelengths of light. Yes, and because all the way, you know, ideally, if you wanted an apochromatic lens, all the wavelengths would come to focus at the same place. In reality, that doesn't, that, that's just not reality, and it's not, not the way on the, any of the photographic lenses or any of the motion picture lenses work. Yeah, and I mean, you know, just, I, I've, I've used lenses that aren't your lenses, <laughs> that absolutely weren't yours, and on a wide lens trying to do a green screen shot, I couldn't pull a good key at the edges because I had chromatic aberrations. They right. they sort of effectively didn't line up, and which meant, of course, if I'm doing a, a chroma-based keying, uh, I'm going to be pulling, you know, an incorrect mat for the uh, for the foreground object. More to the point, the foreground object doesn't exist all at the same place. But as it wasn't even across the lens, it was a particularly hard problem to solve. But but surely the cook look is more than that. It is. It is. And and as I said, the, the depths of it we're not going to discuss. But the result is the result is more important. You know, I learned early on when I started selling lenses that. All the technical specifications in the world go out the window when the producer, the DC, and and the director are sitting in a screening room. They look at the screen and say, "I like that." Well, that's it. That, in fact, is my whole audience. Those three guys. Um, and what's happened recently in the, in the I don't know how recent, but it's been happening for quite a while. To a large extent, I, I think the tail has been wagging the dog. Everybody's comparing specs and MPFs. And you've got to shoot with the latest, greatest camera that you've never seen before, or somebody introduces a new lens and you can't shoot your next movie without it. <clears throat> well, that's the tail wagging the dog. You know, I, the story should be dictating your choices, obviously. I mean, I think, we've, I think a lot of DPs have maybe forgotten that. But going back to your question in the cookbook, that was a, my little harangue. Uh, sorry about that. Um, Cook look, if we have them again on the Cook website. There's some descriptions we've asked directors of photography to give us. And they, they all say more or less the same thing in different words. They all say very pleasing to skin tones, which people look good. It's a warm lens. Um, then they use a word I oftentimes really hate. Some, some of them call it soft. Some of them call it a roundness or a dimensionality. And the thing, the thing that's important to realize is it's not soft in that there's no resolution there. Yeah. Uh, by and large, there's more resolution on a cook lens than most of our competitors. Maybe a better it's way just, to describe it is it lacks a brittle harshness rather than being soft. Right. We, we, it, again, and that goes, 
some people, you know, if you look at some of our competitors on a projector, you, you say, wow, look at that. It looks so wonderful. But all they've really done is boost the contrast. And contrast is not resolution. No, um, no, of course, it, it affects perceived resolution. But yeah, I mean, the other thing I always say is once we're at the level that we're at here, where we obviously are sharp, who said that super sharp is better? I mean, it, it's almost, it's, uh, when I say it, it sounds like, well, of course, sharper is better. But in fact, a, a more contrasty image isn't necessarily a more flawless image. Right. Let me ask you this, though. One of the things that affects the lens a lot, especially a big difference between stills lenses and cinema lenses, is coatings. And I would have thought that uh, in this area alone, technology would have enabled large advances over the years because while the design of the lenses that we discussed from the early days uh, optically have sort of a sensible uh, evolution and certainly some of the other stuff, but, but coatings, uh, especially because of the just nature of... Uh, of technology must have advanced tremendously over the uh, the years that Cook's been in business. Of course, I mean, our, our originally, although we, we filed a patent back in 1904 on some very <laughs> features, uh, coatings did not really hit the photographic or the motion picture industry until after the Second War. So you you can pretty well assume that any anything shot before World War II was probably without coatings. Um, and coatings, yeah, they're very important. There's a, in that same, uh, Cook Factory 4 I mentioned earlier, there's a chart that goes through and shows you the difference in light transmission between coated and uncoated glass. And roughly the rule of thumb is that a, a glass surface will reflect roughly about four or five percent of the light that hits it. And uh, an uncoated. So if you do the regression starting at 100%, and let's just say you have 20 pieces of glass, which would be 40 surfaces, uh, that and you start with 100% of the light, you end up with about 20% of the light coming out the back. So you've lost over two stops. Which is a lot. Which is a lot. Um, and this is why, I mean, if, you, if you've ever wondered why motion picture use, industry uses stops and the rest of the world uses f-stops this is exactly why and, the, and it goes back to, again to the early days the you know in, in film as opposed to video the laboratory is somewhere else so they didn't really care uh, what the f-stop was they wanted to know how much light actually got to the film and obviously without coatings the difference between the f and the t number could be actually very great uh, in modern lenses, such as the S4s, or, you know, the, the difference now with modern coatings is that same 20-element lens, 40 surfaces. You start with 100% of the light, you end up with almost 97% of the light. So you can see that in coatings have made a huge difference in that now F numbers and T numbers are, are virtually interchangeable. Uh, or almost interchangeable, a Cook T2 lens would be an F19, uh, and maybe even a little faster than F19. So it, it, the difference is, is negligible in today's world, and that's really because of the coding. Uh, so, huge difference. 
So the other thing that's immediately obvious uh, when looking at lenses, especially if you're looking at the bokeh as, uh, as one tends to do, is the number of blades that are being used. Um, what's the critical effect of the uh, number of blades in a lens? Well, you know, that's a good question, and it really depends on what you want your eye, your bokeh to look like. Uh, you know, uh, one of one of our competitors had a had a triangular iris for a while, which they, which just they got beat. To, well, nobody liked it. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, you know, we have we use various irises depending on the lens uh, family. You know, seven, eight, ten, eleven. I've seen some new irises coming out that are even more blades. Uh, irises are fairly, fairly tricky. And, you know, if you want to, you want a really round iris, the way to do it is to have more blades. Of course, that then adds thickness and other issues. I was say, must add, it must add other issues other than just how the, the bokeh looks on a defocused, uh, you know, point light. Surely there's more to it than that. Surely there would be, and you, you really need that. This would be a, an area for John to John Maxwell to jump in on, and unfortunately, uh, he's not sitting next to me tonight. <laughs> so, uh, so let's just quickly um, update where Cook is at today. Uh, the lenses are proudly made still in uh, Lister, right? In uh, in the UK. Since, since the very beginning, the factory has been located at various locations throughout the Leicester uh, area. But yes. And for the last decade or so, you've had a, a fairly new factory there. I think you opened one about 10 yeah, years when ago. Yeah, when I took over Cook in 98, part of the deal was I had to build a new factory and opened the new factory, uh, I assume, around 2000. So the company is uh, is now uh, with three primary product lines. Um, obviously, the, the, the five is the leading lens. Um, just talk to me about uh, the direction that the company is going at the moment and the three primary product lines. Well, or, or, well, the, the S fours are the are the, the lens that started off, I would say, the modern lens revolution. And you know, we did a lot of homework on the S fours. Uh, we talked to not only directors of photography, which are the obvious choice, but we talked to rental houses, and we talked to probably the most important input came from the assistants. Um, of course, you talk to the DPs, they want the cook look, they want the sharpest lens they can get. They're, it's pretty pretty easy to know if they want it. And, you know, by talking to a lot of them, you certainly confirm that. Uh, the rental houses wanted an, a lens that the DPs would like, uh, and, but they also wanted a lens that was easy to surface. Because, you know, you get a lens back, it takes you all day to service it, and you've got six, seven, eight lenses in the set. That means that set of lenses is out of, week, out of out of service for a week. So the rental houses want to say they could turn around really quick. And the most interesting group was probably the assistants and the focus boards. Because they had probably the biggest input on the ergonomic design of the lens. They wanted a lens, obviously, that they could grip easily. They wanted the lens that had the numbers nicely spread apart. Uh, at the long end and, and compacted at the wide end so you can get more numbers with easily readable marks. Uh, and, and the list goes on. And the S4 embodied all of those requests. We made the DPs happy. We gave them a relatively flare, we gave them a flare-free 
sharp limbs that had the cooked look, but they could use wide open for the first time with confidence. We gave the, the rental houses a lens they could service in an hour, so they could turn around a whole set in a day. And we gave assistants the things they wanted to make the lens more workable from their point of view. And we got it right because virtually everybody has copied us. <laughs> and I have to say that pisses me off to no end. Is, you know, we did all the research and everybody's benefited, but that's, you know, that's like... Uh, okay, but if the S4s are so good, why do you need an S5? Well, um, my personal opinion is that you probably don't. <laughs> uh, uh, but, you know, we are... One of the things that I try to cook about on is that we listen to the market. And for instance, originally we didn't have a 27 millimeter. Well, originally we had four lenses. The set now of S4s consists of 18 lenses. And we were approached by the Hollywood rental companies to create a 27 millimeter lens. And my first thought was sort of, okay, we could just move the camera. <laughs> at, at the end of the day, I you know that that was my first thought, which I which I did not voice, and now you're going to broadcast it to the world, but that's okay. My second thought was, okay, if you guys want this and you're willing to give us the orders, that would uh, justify the design work and building the lens. We'll be quite happy to do it, and that's been my philosophy, you know. I may think something different, but that's my philosophy as far as addressing the market. I'm going to listen to it. So we were approached. Uh, the, the people that approached us gave us the orders. We designed the 27, and much to my surprise, and this is a, another great learning experience, much to my surprise, the 27 has become one of the most popular lenses we make. <laughs> Originally, I thought it would only sell in Panavision areas, because Panavision had a 27. But it sells everywhere. People get the 25, the 27, the 32. So I've learned that. Listen. And so the market was saying, T2, great. But we really want something faster. Uh, so we did. We did, the, we did the 5i series. And the 5i series, there are currently only nine lenses. Uh, there are another... Um, at least three on the drawing board that will be out hopefully later this year. And that will probably conclude that series again unless the market comes back to us and says, we really want this focal length and here are the orders to justify doing it. So uh, there's a mini S4 as well, um, yes. which and is which is great for people that are perhaps, because I mean, like that, that, that's not bed around the bush. It's not particularly cheap to buy a set of, of Cook uh five lenses um you know because they're good quality lenses but they are there are different I want, be, I want you to be careful here Mike, because <laughs> our philosophy on the mini s4s and I, and, and I for those that may be listening uh, they were originally called the new pancros but that was a bit confusing made, yeah. and i made a terrible mistake and i take full blame for this i thought it, was, it would be great to revive the old name because it's such a revered name. Yeah. But I was wrong. Uh, it created nothing but confusion in the market. 
people that love the old pancros, and as you know, there are people still shooting with the speed pancros. Uh, they were disappointed because they're more like S4s than the old speed pancros. And of course, people that didn't want the look of the old pancros wouldn't even look at them. So we renamed them Mini S4 to clear up that confusion. And I apologize to the market for that for my mistake there. But the thing to keep in mind with the minis, we didn't cut corn. We what we cut is the speed. Yeah. You know, we've been running an ad recently that is called uh, "One Look All Speeds," and that really was the philosophy. We wouldn't put the cook name on it if it didn't have the cook look and the cook quality. Well, I think I think you and I were talking around the time of Hugo, and you were pointing out. I'm pretty sure it was Hugo that yep. they were shooting on a variety of cook lenses and quite frankly when you were at like f4 or i think it was or five six whatever it was no one could really tell the difference that's right i mean it, frankly if you're shooting a 2.8 i mean the, the the fives are one four the s4s are two and the, the mini s4s are at 2.8 and frankly if you're shooting at 2.8 or slower or fa- excuse me 2.8 or slower um you can't tell um well in this and, case um, in this case, the I'm person that couldn't tell was Martin Scorsese and his DOP, which is a, which is a pretty good uh, indication. Yeah, you know, and as we said, they, uh, you're, uh, on Yugo, they started with fives. They shot on, Yugo shot on Alexas and Cook lenses, and they started with two sets of fives, for, they were shooting 3D, and they, they did, they, they wanted the fives originally because they were afraid of the speed loss because of the mirror box. But they discovered, keeping in mind, this is almost the first major film the Alexa was used on. So they were discovering things about the camera, you know, that nobody knew. Yeah. One of the first uses. So they discovered, again, you, you know, rating the cover, cam, camera at 800 was no problem. And so all of a sudden, the speed of the, the fives, they appreciate it, but the way Bob would like things anyway. S4s were, were perfectly fine. And and in fact, even a 2.8 life was good. So all the steady cam shots in Yugo, and some of them were, you know, Larry McCartney that did the, uh, the steady cam work there, I, I, my heart goes out to him. Two Alexas, a mirror box, <laughs> and lenses on a steady camera the thing had to weigh about 80 90 pounds uh this was before the you know the alexa m yep so it was serious and, and at the last shot in, in you go i think it was almost a two minute steady cam shot so i don't know how he did it but it, it, it's a work of art and he shot with pamphlet so um it was a great blend it brought everything together so i i you know i just there are other companies that are making, uh, you know, low down market lenses at a at an inex- well, I would say at a cheap price, and you know you get what you pay for. The, the Pancros, excuse me, the Mini S4s, are not. They were designed by the same team of people that designed the fours and the fives. Yeah, but they are. They are not the same price, right? I mean, don't. No, they're not the same price. Yeah. And, as a rule of thumb, every every stop uh, that you, the lens gets faster or slower represents 
a, a difficulty factor of not two, not three, but eight. Basically, is the cube of, of the of it. So, well, if S four is is our basic lens. The, a five I is eight times more difficult, and an, and, a, and a mini is eight times easier. So, it, just in the tolerancing alone. Uh, makes it a, a far less expensive a lens for us to put together. Yeah. Well, look, I know that the history of the company dates from 1886, I think you said, um, but and I know that you're very modest, but I just want to take this opportunity because you don't get thanked enough. I, I personally, I'm only expressing my own personal opinion here, think that if you hadn't entered the picture in 98, we wouldn't be having this discussion today. And not only does the film community, of course, more importantly, I guess in a sense, the some 60 or 70 craftsmen and women that work at uh, Cook, um, we all owe you uh, thanks. And I know that you're very modest, and I know that you're going to rebuff me when I say this, but I, I think that uh, you deserve enormous credit for your role in the, uh, in the Cook story, and I just really appreciate you talking to us today. Well, Mike, uh, I won't rebuff you. I'll just say thank you very much and leave it at that. But I will make one slight correction. We are now eight, about 86, 87 people at wow. today. And uh, we're looking to hire. So if you know anybody that wants to work in Western England, the garden spot of the world, we're looking We're looking for people. Well, again, congratulations on your uh, your acknowledgement by the Academy. Um, it does seem, does seem fair time in coming. Uh, and again, thank you for taking time to talk to us, Les. It's always been a pleasure. Thank you. So that is, uh, as much as um, recognition of the technology, it's also like a lifetime achievement award, really, even though you know, I guess it's not really said that way. No, absolutely. I totally agree with you. And it's, it is uh, very much the case that the SciTech Awards are honouring quality of uh, contribution that isn't immediate. In fact, you could get a SciTech Award for something that you developed, which is maybe not even necessarily cutting edge right now, uh, that was developed a while ago. In the case of Cook, as you heard in the interview, it's way overdue because this is a company that existed before Kodak. Uh, but that being said, you know, um, a lot of DOPs have tried to define what they, they like about Cook. I certainly mm. think, as I said in that interview, that Les himself, uh, Les Zellin came to Cook. He obviously, you know, um, as you heard in the interview, uh, came in kind of in the last, uh, whatever it was, 14 years or whatever it is. But he's done a tremendous amount, uh, including the new factory and everything else, to, to keep Cook uh, where it is. And, I mean, he's very hard on himself <laughs> and quite modest, but I think he's done a sensational job. And... But, you know, that, that kind of British craftsmanship, I think it's some of the best British manufacturing in the film industry. It's that sort of real care about the job, not yeah. care about, you know, uh, sort of the gloss and, the and you know, I've, I've got to say, like, uh, shooting with a, an S4 is kind of, for me, a real benchmark lens. If I want to put something up against yeah. something good, yeah. that's You know, that's use. one less thing. It's kind of one less thing uh, in the chain that you know is could You know, if you're trying to do some testing... It's nice to know that you're putting at the front, you're putting the very best thing on the front and, uh, you know, downhill from there on. What I can't work out is the sort of grading between an Oscar statuette for the SciTech Awards and an actually an actual plaque. Is that kind of like, is like a plaque just like the first of the losers or what the delineation no. between a plaque and a statuette is? Yeah, no, there's actually quite a lot of uh, stuff that goes into the SciTechs. Um, it's, it's 
considerably more uh, rigorous, I guess is probably the way to describe it, and uh, sensible than you might think. So when stuff is uh, being submitted for a SciTech Oscar, there's um, a submission that goes in. There's a committee of really good people, and they deal with this. And it's and and they I don't know they've published all of this, but I have over the years spoken to various people that have been at various times on the committee. They take their job really seriously. It works through levels, and they have a very strict criteria. And I think in the coming year, you'll actually see more transparency with the committee in explaining um, what's what. Obviously, some of the awards, uh, which are sort of more recognizing people for um, an individual uh, merit thing, but the the Oscar statuette that Cook is getting is kind of the, um, yeah, it, it does have definite overtones of serious long-term contribution to the industry as opposed to a kind of a, um, uh, a certificate or the plaque. This yeah. is the real kind of highlight of the night apart from the fact they also at the uh, Cytex tend to honor somebody from a lifetime achievement award and I don't mean to claim one is better than the other but yeah this is this is uh, this is really serious stuff and and because it's done through such an honest open and quite rigorous technical um, procedure this isn't subject to politics you don't get to kind of lobby for votes this is not that kind of a thing this is not uh, this is because yeah, you know let's face it the and we I was at the Cytex last year the Oscars are meant to be, the whole bloody academy is meant to be about the arts and sciences. And obviously the arts bits, the acting, the, the normal Oscars get most of the attention. But absolutely the academy's built on the science. But, and I think in recent years we've seen with things like ACES a lot more uh, serious contribution back into the community by the uh, academy and its uh, science committee. I think the science and technical awards committee as well as the various subcommittees have been doing an outstanding job. Yeah. They, you know, there was a in, period there where I thought I've said they're almost getting a little bit out of date, but no, this is not the case. And you're in kind of tough competition these days if you're doing a SciTech award uh, nom- nomination because a lot of it, it's, gra- it's rapidly becoming, not overrun, but dominated by uh, post software and, you know, and, and VFX, uh, which is not a bad thing. Um, but there's, of all of the SciTech awards, there's only a couple that are actually for shooting or, or production or physical uh, stuff, be it, uh, you know, uh, the Matthews Max, the Max Menace arm, or the um, a portable, cine, uh, portable power system by uh, Cine VCLX. Well, look, so some of some of the other winners um, this year, and we've got a lot of them being covered over at FX Guide, but the Pose uh, Space Deformation stuff is, uh, as you say, it's like an animation thing, and it's really a big deal uh, in, in its own right. The light stuff from uh, PDI is a bit like Katana. Those are sort of, you would say, in similar kind of worlds. Uh, they're not exactly the same, but PDI stuff and Sony stuff, uh, being Katana and light, are both really high-end innovations to large-scale um, production stuff. Um, but, you know, the turbulent stuff was not really a po- – well, it was like an academic paper that then got picked up by, say, Houdini um, for the wavelet turbulent stuff. And I've done a story on that, but basically what happens is you do a kind of a lower-res version and then it basically extrapolates based on wavelet technology to give you a much higher frequency, much more interesting uh, – so if you've got an explosion, for example, it goes from looking kind of average to looking, oh, my God, that looks awesome, uh, without having to recompute the whole thing. Um and then certainly the tissue stuff out of Weta, which is the Academy plaque, that is astounding as you would have witnessed. I mean, that's exactly what was used uh, on the Trolls, on the on uh, Gollum. I mean, I, I think Gollum is one of the finest digital creatures we've seen on screen. And, and oh, the, it was astounding. That was an astounding sequence. It was a long sequence, but completely merited it to be that long. It was, it was riveting. 
and that was all uh, tissue physics-based character sims. And then you've got the uh, the Mocha Planet tracking stuff. And look, you know, you could be watching, I don't know, Survivor or something, and they've been using Mocha to take out mics and uh, hide antennas on what are otherwise meant to be <laughs> tropical islands with no one around and, right. uh, and doing all sorts of stuff. And it's astonishing how much that is used. Um, and then, as you say, you've got the portable power stuff. Hey, it all helps us on production, you know. If it's one less thing we actually have to remove in, in you know, if it makes it all the easier to make that post, just let's get rid of it, you know, let's fix it in post. If the the let's fix it in post decision becomes an easier one because of a new piece of software, then then bring it on. Production life just got easier and then we can spend more time uh, getting the scene worth watching in the first place. I think the other thing, Jace, is that, uh, you know, in all honesty, like uh, there's a lot of money invested in R&D in post, so I'm not saying anything about quality of who should win or not, but uh, somebody that's developing something for on set probably doesn't have multi-million dollar R&D budgets. But on a feature film where you're spending 20, 30, 50 million dollars on uh, visual effects, you're going to have a you know, pretty sizable R&D budget. So it's not unsurprising that innovations in film are coming through from people that are investing heavily in R&D and... You know, that's no comment on production. It's just that, uh, yeah. you know, the money is there to do that. Yeah. Well, talking of saving money in post, do you want to talk about uh, trifocal, this uh, Disney testing trifocal uh, rigs for 3D? Yeah, it's a bit of an interesting thing, really. I mean, I think the holy grail of uh, cinematography at the moment is to sort of stop weighing down the production with bigger and bigger rigs and so as the camera is split in half in the case of the Alexa or in the case of Epic they're really smaller we get smaller and smaller rigs it makes steady cam easier um, in that interview with Cook earlier they had a huge uh, cam sequence at the end of Hugo that was all done on Cooks which is like an incredibly heavy rig because of the mirror mm. because of the two uh, cameras and so there are various approaches to trying to solve this problem, and one of the most interesting ones that I've seen recently is this Disney trifocal camera, which is basically, uh, think of a main camera with two sort of witness cameras almost either side of it, and it's it's deriving from those dual witness cameras a bunch of stuff that's feeding into the stereoscopic solution that is being solved by uh, the entire package but the image quality is coming from your primary lens so you would have one big cook lens in this example in the middle and then you've got these two much smaller almost look like surveillance cameras type uh, things which are giving the stereoscopic offset information but not your primary image quality which is being derived from your master lens so obviously a much lighter weight rig yeah i'm interested to see if they what how much a few things about this I, this is my understanding is this is to give you as much information to then post dimensionalize later easier is that right do we think it's kind of letting you sort of triangulate and work out the shape of something with these two uh these two extra views left and right of your main lens this is this is more to speed up the post solution of not shooting 3d on on set but then to to create a 3d um in, in post yeah you're gonna get a remarkably better uh depth map based uh on this and uh this is you know really going to make a big difference to being able to produce stuff and it's it's sort of it's sort of dimensionalizing without cheating so much yeah because it. it's pretty bloody good at the moment it's a lot of work no doubt i'm not sure how much time you need to allow to do post dimensionalizing or how much it actually costs these days to do it but that if you you know if the if the results get better and cheaper and faster this is this is going to be the 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 way forward we are going to see 
as this improves and there's other technology which is in the show notes we probably don't have time to get onto but um, there's a lot of um, thought going into single lens or this trifocal way of extracting 3d data without having to go to the pain the pain and, and horror as you say Andrew Lesney having to shoot at 200 ISO uh, with rigs and alignment if you can you know I'd be interested to also know how much information what kind of do they need to change lenses on these mini cams either side of the lens to match the field of view I don't of the believe other one? so no or and what sort of how much information do you need do they have to be super high def how much data are we having to extra data are we having to collect can it be almost done as a dual stream on a can you all be captured on a codex say can it be you know are you not have if you're not having to do the double your double your your data usage to do this method that would be even you know that'd be another bigger uh, help to production as well so it'd be interesting to see what resolution do these cameras have to be and do they need to change lenses all of that extra pain would really help and anything that makes the production feel more like a normal natural production where you don't have to like with hobbit if they want to go to 35 mil lens they just change to the whole 35 mil camera um, change entire rigs to, to to do so. Yeah, I mean, I must admit, this was first uh, sort of shown at the um, NAB 2012, and they had a Panasonic um, setup from the guy that was doing the post-processing on this at the show. I did not see it there. It kind of slipped through my radar. Uh, but I think you're absolutely right. If you can, because... Interestingly, that Mocha software that I was talking about uh, earlier, which has got a, a SciTech award, is being used heavily for doing dimensionalization. If you could dimensionalize more intelligently by uh, adding these witness cameras but not having to go to the stream of matching lenses and swapping out lenses and flying in different stuff. And as you say, like a codex could easily record that extra data if one was to, to build it that way. I think it's uh, it's pretty interesting. Hey, um, I, I, I diverted us before the Red Room interview about talking anything more about lenses. And I would like to come back to discuss, because as I said at the outset of the show, um, I was very excited about this news about the master anamorphic. So I might steer us in that direction because I, I love anamorphic lenses and I was just really uh, keen to hear about this. Yeah, well, I think last time we spoke to, we saw Ari, I think it might have been NAB, they had the... Uh, prototype it wasn't even really they couldn't even say it was a 50 or what lens it was it's basically the announcement of the anamorphic program for zeiss and and, and ari and they basically announced now the the range and the fact that they're in production whether they're actually rentable or in exist in full in full existence yet but um they've announced the kit and the speeds they're all t19 which is fantastic there's a 35 40 50 60 75 100 and 135 that's Jason, a, did you that's say that's a beautiful there's a 35? Yes. Did you say there was a 35? There's a 35. 3519. That's that's good, isn't it? That's terrific. And great now, other people had 35s. Yeah, other people should have 35. I think a 35, uh, even in say helpful? spherical lenses, should be um, you know should be mandatory. But who wouldn't bring one of those out? Anyway, we digress. Go back to your anamorphics. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, look. I, basically, the, the announce the set has been announced. They are. Um, I mean, these, pricing. Uh, uh, no pricing. Right. I do not have pricing. Do not expect these to be cheap. These are. You know, this is you're into the upper upper echelon of of into you're into rental uh, territory or purchase if you're a rental house or you know you're shooting your you know shooting features all the time. 
this is uh, some serious going to be some some serious stuff and well beyond this is going to be beyond master prime um Ooh, okay. master prime money surely surely you're talking you know large you know large proper professional glass but i welcome all um anamorphic options in this world because the number of times i've tried to get it for for shoots and have not and not been beaten down by if if i haven't get beaten down by price i've been beaten down by um availability just physically not being able to get the glass or yes no worries we've got a kit it's a 1903 steam driven set that was um used on um um uh, some you know some silent movie uh, and adapted for and we put a pr mount on it so uh anything that uh helps fill the world with the you know more available anamorphic glass is a fantastic thing i'm going to touch on anamorphics towards the end with a little um uh, another little note but uh yeah I, I'm yet to find out, and I'm sure at NAB we'll again visit our friends at ARI and, and get a heads up as to where this program's going and find out more about availability. But uh, it's a beautiful range, and I'm really happy with the speeds. These speeds are, you know, in anamorphic, it's an extra piece of glass. It's a, a very mo much more complicated piece of optics, and uh, they are not known for their speed generally. Anamorphic glass, this is outstanding. And what is nice about it. And again, let, well, let's let's hear this from from, from Ari, but uh, they ha are fully, from what I can read here, that they're talking about blue streaks and bokeh and um, uh, you know out of focus areas that they are wanting to correct as much of the bad stuff of, of anamorphics, like the mumps look. Sometimes you get the sort of unusual. Um, can't kind of look in the cheeks with sort of distortion so they're getting rid of that stuff and getting rid of breathing but still uh keeping as much interesting uh, the, the stuff we do love about anamorphics blue streaks and stuff so they've definitely tried to accentuate the, the stuff that we love about anamorphics but 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 kill a lot of the bad stuff and keep them really fast which means fast means more out of focus backgrounds which means you know which means a, a better look i mean like you've already those... got a better look anyway with anamorphics because you are using generally using a tighter lens than you would for the same width of shot if that makes sense a 35 mil lens will give you 35 mil lens field of view top and bottom but because it essentially has a horizontal um uh wide angle adapter on it it will give you a field of view of a 16 mil lens say on from the front that's simplifying a little bit but you'll get a 16 mil field of view uh um left to right and a 35 mil field of view uh, top to bottom uh, just to simplify things but if anybody was wondering why does this lens set start at 35 there's a reason for it I mean, the thing about a an older style anamorphic is you would often not want to shoot wide open because it really has horrible artifacts wide open. If these are engineered by, um, you know, which they are obviously, Ari, uh, the Zeiss Master Primes, I mean, these are going to work properly. And if they work properly, you can actually use them at 1.9. Um, I've certainly, when I was shooting with you, Chase, we wouldn't have we had real issues on some of those uh, lenses going wide open. Oh, yeah, the old stuff, you know, I mean, you guys had to battle it in post. The distortion, the weird artifacting, the chromatic aberration, 
blooming, just every, everything that was there when you start to really get into these shearing, things. yeah, yeah, just uh, and just you know <laughs> how how odd they are mechanically and and uh, and and really were fairly slow, which means that the whole the whole lovely out of focus uh, ovalized bokeh was pretty much out the window because it's pretty hard to get that because the lenses were slow to begin with, so. Yes, they definitely mention optimized flares and bokeh, yet they also mention you know you know no breathing and all the kind of shit that we we don't like. So, hurrah! And uh, for those of you that are interested in anamorphic, there's an actual anamorphic masterclass with Peter James, who's a superb cinematographer. You happen to be in Australia. Uh, at the AFTRS. This is in Sydney. Sydney, yes. At yep. time of broadcast on Friday the 18th, Sydney time, there are still places available. Um, AFTRS. If you, I think if you just, I find it very hard to find this course at AFTRS on their their website. It's terrible for actually finding the courses. But if you Google Peter James and Anamorphic and Masterclass, you will it, it, the link will find in Google. Google will find it, even though AFTRS uh, actual website doesn't. Uh, obviously, this is for Sydney only, but you know, available to anybody who wants to fly themselves there. So, uh, Peter's an absolute god of the industry and has done uh, multiple films, and I think he's done eight or ten of them. Have uh, been uh, anamorphic, the rest, and uh, so he knows what he's talking about. I'm, I'm signed up. I'm there. Are you going? Are you? Yep, I'm done. I was I'm doing seriously it. thinking about it. going myself, actually. Yep. Even though I don't deserve to, because driving Miss Daisy, meet the parents, like, and just hearing him talk, as I have several oh. times in the past. Black robe. There's some. Oh just, my god. Some beautiful, yeah. be- beautiful stuff. Um, but uh, I'm not. I'm trying to find out which of his uh, features were actually shots um, anamorphic, so I can be a bit better, bit better, um, have my questions better, better answered. But. Um, uh, certainly, a, a wealth of a wealth of a wealth of, and this is someone who is very engaged in the industry. He always goes oh, to yeah. ACS nights. He always goes. Not that a lot of the other guys aren't, but he will. He, he he's always there. He's got a lot of energy, very giving of his time, very giving of his knowledge, and so um, yeah. For, from all those reasons, I'm very keen to go go uh, go see him and and uh, you know, and, and support him. And I did a uh, short course with. Uh, Warren Eagles to, on Resolve and that was fantastic so I was, I was a bit sort of hesitant doing a course in something but uh, it was really really great to sort of get back and you know get educated and get your hands dirty and, and uh, yeah so we're going to be shooting with the uh, 4.3 Alexa um, uh, and I think the um, Hawks so we'll see Hey um the wisecrack I was making before when I was being a smartass about the where's the 35, you should probably explain that. It seemed like a fairly obscure, obtuse joke oh, yes. if you had listened to this N- podcast. Not obscure, probably, if you yeah, if you know know us. But uh, uh, the Canon, which you've previously, we talked about, I think, last episode, and it hadn't quite been out, but uh, you got, you and Tom Gleason did a, a great comparison between the um, uh, Canon L-Glass and the recently launched uh, cine, Canon Cine glass. Uh, at that time, and still at the moment, you could not buy. They had a set of lenses, which was, I think, a 24, a 50, and an 85. Mm-hmm. And I, I've mentioned it many a time. A set of lenses in, means you have a 35 in there or something similar. A 30. That's just a huge gap from 24 to 50. Stupid. So um, they have added a couple more lenses to the kit. A 14 and a uh, 135 have been added to the kit. 
Did I say 35? No. You did not. No. I did not. So the extended kit for a cine, for the cine glass, a, a set of lenses which Canon have probably spent millions in R&D getting ready uh, to attach to the multiple millions they probably spent uh, um, developing the C500, 300, 100, uh, exists, it consists of a 14, 135, 24, 50, and 85. For there still to be no 35mm in this kit is utter stupidity and will keep people from buying this set of lenses. This is just nuts. Uh, I can't think of a set of lenses, extended set of lenses, or a company attempting to set a set of lenses, sell a set of lenses that doesn't have a 35mm in there. This is just high order stupidity when you are spending multiple millions of dollars to rd lenses and camera to not have to have to have a kettle lenses that that has that 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 size missing is just i don't know shoot yourself through the head stupid <laughs> about as stupid as black magic not having giving you the ability to control the iris for all of this amazing stuff we're seeing i mean this is like you know, you know complaining about cindy crawford's mole right we, we have just been blessed with a million in the last 12 months what we've announced what we've what we've mentioned on this podcast would, would have made your, your head explode five years ago yet here i am complaining about the fact that you know canon finally making some lenses um that uh, based on some of the le- beautiful beautiful lenses that i've loved um and made them uh, ready for uh cine use and made them sort of set friendly uh, I, I shouldn't really be complaining, but I just this is just absolute bullshit that they don't have a thirty-five mil. I would, I seriously, if they had a thirty-five mil lens, I would. I'm seriously considering about buying this this set, or not necessarily the full extended set, but the twenty-four, fifty, eighty-five. If there was a thirty-five in there, I seriously, even though these are fairly expensive lenses, I would still consider i would consider dumping all my rest of my glass and buying that set and then renting the extended stuff when i needed it or using you know for really long or really wide still using stuff like the the uh, 11 to 16 or something for for the wide ends so you know that 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 is keeping me i'm just one person but that is keeping me from buying this set of lenses i think that and the money but yes okay so what isn't stupid what isn't bullshit and we've really lost our clean tag this week is, We've uh, never had one. I don't want one, even if there was one. Yeah, I don't want Get rid of it. Yeah, we're Australians. Hey, um, yeah. Yeah. So a, a member of my... Yeah, I can, um, no, I'm not going to tell that story. Okay. Um, okay, I'm going to tell that story. So I'm sure she won't mind. Uh, my mother was very sick, uh, extremely sick, and she's now recovered considerably, but she was really, really sick. And uh, she'd had a, a stroke. And she wasn't able to speak. She had a lot of trouble speaking at all, as somebody that has a stroke has. She's now much better. But um, and, and I love my mother dearly, but uh, she's a country girl. And when they were in rehab trying to get her talking again, very serious, and she was in hospital for like a month. But the, one of the first words she managed to stutter out when they were trying to get her to speak, and she was finding it very frustrating, as if you know about a stroke, it means you can't actually articulate the words, even though you can sort of think them in your... You just can't literally make your your body respond. And she, uh, the uh, the speech therapist was there and the doctor, and they're all being very earnest trying to get her to articulate something, and she just couldn't get anything out. It's very frustrating for anyone involved in this. It's a very serious problem. But the only word my mother managed to get out in the first session was 
bugger. <laughs> just, just such an Australian thing. You just got to love a country girl. Uh, and my mother, I love her dearly, and I'm just glad she's getting much better. But it was yeah, just... Uh, absolutely. It was Good the uh, frustration, uh, but I just thought it was just very funny. That's, the, uh, that's in my DNA. Hey, um, the martini shot. Something that's not stupid. It's not uh, annoying. No, um, it just was a quick little blog mention. It was just another one of the fantastic uh, KCRW, uh, KCRW uh, podcasts. Um, it's more, maybe more of a, uh, a, a, a relating maybe to writers, but it's just they're very short, little bite size, maybe five minutes or or so each one. Just nice little humorous monologues about from a veteran TV writer and a producer, Rob Long. Um, from Cheers, right? I mean, this guy's really is he? Yeah, I, I, yeah, I, he was I one of the producers know. on Cheers. Right, right. But uh, yeah, he's terrific and very funny and quite clever and I actually have to now go back and gather all of the rest of the other ones since, I don't know, it looks like sort of um, since, I don't know when the last, it's been going back back a, back a little while. This is not a new podcast, so there's a whole bunch of back apps I need to, to get. And as I say, they're only little bite-sized ones, but if you search for KCRW's Martini Shot, and uh, yeah, a nice little, I just happened to stumble upon it. I thought, oh, this is kind of cool. How yeah. long are they? Uh, as I say, probably you know, in just a couple of minutes, I think. Really, really, really. Um, I don't, yeah, I don't know how long they are. They don't seem very long, do they? But they're, they're that's the point, though. It's not like this podcast that goes on for forever. <laughs> <laughs> no, he's going more for quality. Than he's going for quality <laughs> rather than length. At that note, after several hours of uh, listening to us, we'd like to thank you for being with us, uh, if you still are, and uh, we'll see you on the next one. Jace, thanks so much for being with us, man. Thanks, really mate. appreciate thanks it. Thanks, all. See yeah. you, guys. Thanks for listening. Send your questions or comments to rc at fxguide.com. Copyright 2011, FX Guide, LLC.